Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 31st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. While most attention over the past week has been focused on the government's COVID strategy, which was finally announced yesterday, it is quite possible that when we look back on this period in a few years' time, equal or maybe even more significance will be attached to the publication last week of the Climate Action Bill, which sets more stringent targets for the decarbonisation of Irish society than we've ever seen before. I want to discuss what that all means, but also to discuss another subject which has been linked with it in much of the coverage of the last week, and that's the internal dissension within the Green Party itself over the decision of that party's chair, Hazel Chu to stand as an independent in an upcoming Senate by-election. What does that dispute tell us about the current Green Party and might it impact on whether the climate policies which the party supports are actually going to get implemented? To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Sive O'Neill, who's policy coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Welcome back, Sive. Good morning. And I'm also joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy. And Pat, before we go to all of this, um, I do want to ask you about the... Um, the, the details of the statement in relation to COVID strategy by the government, which were announced, as I say, yesterday yesterday evening by the, by the Taoiseach, they've created quite a splash in some circles and been met with a muted response in others. What do you make of them in total? I suppose two aspects of it, Hugh. The first was the reprioritization of the vaccine, um, uh, of the vaccination program, uh, which will see a much simpler approach taken to it as the vaccination program ramps up in April and May instead of the somewhat complicated system of cohorts whereby people were uh, prioritized for the vaccine according to their um, according to their occupations or at least many of them were so that there was some priority given to teachers guards and uh, and so forth it's now to be done on a purely age-based system I think there was um, I think there was a fear in government that the administration of a complicated system would slow down the uh, the pace of the vaccine rollout. And really for the government, everything depends on doing that million shots a month in uh, in April, May, and June that they have uh, that that they have promised. Um, not surprisingly, I suppose there's been a bit of a pushback against that from uh, teachers' organisations, from uh, guard or representative organisations, and so forth. And I think we'll see plenty more of that over the um, over the coming days. The other part uh, of the big announcements yesterday, um, I, I, I suppose, then was the easing of restrictions, and really what we saw was very much at the concern end of what people might have hoped would have been possible. So, um, you know, the uh, the meeting up outdoors, the restarting of construction, the return to uh, return to activity for kids, sports, all of those happening later uh, in the month than people might have hoped for. So what I think we see is that the government is um, notwithstanding the fact that many of its members favour uh, a, a brisker reopening. They are 
too afraid to go against the advice of Nefed for fear of uh, a, a repeat or anything like what happened uh, after Christmas. So I think that um, that you know the effects of that third wave after Christmas, the effect of the Christmas reopening, which gave us those very high numbers in December and January, that continues to be probably the single biggest factor in the government's decision making um, uh, as, uh, as we go into the second quarter. Because there is legitimate fear, isn't there, uh, on the part of the government and of, of Neffet, that um, in the expectation that the vaccine rollout will go as planned, and let's hope that it does, there is still a final moment of potential peril between now and those numbers really starting to take effect in early summer. Yeah, this is what Nefed have told uh, have told the government that there is a danger of a of a fourth wave. There's a danger of thousands of cases a day, um, such as we saw in the latter part of uh, of December and of January. And the government is simply too terrified of that potential outcome to risk uh, the sort of more accelerated reopening that many of its members um that ma- many of its members might favor and i think they know that you know given the you know given the public mood the general sense of everybody reaching the end of their tether that so many of us have uh, have commented upon that um that botching either this phase, uh, this last phase of the reopening or the rollout of the vaccine would, I think, be curtains for the authority of uh, of the government. So uh, so I think that is what has given us this quite conservative, uh, this quite conservative approach, this more conservative approach than many of the individual members of the government might favour. Okay, well, I have absolutely no doubt that we will be returning to this subject again and again and again over the coming weeks and indeed months. But but if I could go to you, Saif, I mean, I said in my introduction that perhaps in a few years' time, when we look back at this, we might see the Climate Action Bill as being as significant uh, an event in the political history of the country as, as what we're coping with with COVID. Is that overstating it? It is a very significant moment, I think, in Irish public policy. Um, it's a very big improvement on the draft bill that was published in October. Um, and it does set climate action on very firm foundations. It makes it an overriding priority of government into the future and kind of setting climate action and thus incorporating a lot of other environmental objectives, setting them up as a, if you like, a core function of the state as a whole, right up there beside jobs, economy, health and education. And that, I suppose, is a singular achievement of the Green Party as it went into government. It prioritised this particular legislation. But I think the achievement belongs as much to civil society. Uh, we've been campaigning in Stop Climate Chaos since 2007 for this bill, and it's been the focus focused of most of the climate activism over the last few years, because it was quite clear that the 2015 Act that was passed by the Fine Gael Independent Coalition back in 2015 was really very weak. It didn't impose any serious obligations on the state. It set a very long-term vague target. And it was obvious that that was a major obstacle to climate action in the near term. Um, in, in the meantime, we've had youth climate strikes, 10,000 youth marching on Merrion Square, the Citizens' Assembly, a very strong joint Rockdus committee report in 2019. And before Christmas, we had the largest virtual mass lobby of TDs um, with over a thousand individuals meeting their TDs on one day to advocate for this very thing, this climate bill. So it is a game changer. It is a success, a win for the Green Party. 
society. And But I think it's fair to say that it's the activity of civil society that made it a political possibility to get Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael over the line. Our experience is they have been very supportive of this legislation. Uh, they've had some issues with some of the details. There are certain aspects of it that can be improved at committee stage. No doubt some amendments will be tabled. But we would hope that uh, it will actually represent a game-changing moment for Irish climate policy. And its effects will ripple out throughout the economy as we start to look at solutions uh, to our dependence on fossil fuels in every sector, whether it's energy, power generation, transport, uh, buildings, heating, and obviously agriculture as well. And I want to dig uh, a little bit uh, more into what all that might mean a little bit later. But maybe we just turn to to the other issue I mentioned, which is the coverage of the bill has very much been coloured in newspapers, including our own, by this sort of squabble, I suppose you could, you could describe it, over this um, Senate election and the decision by Hazel Chu to, to run as an independent uh, with her nomination supported by a number of members of the Green Parliamentary Party. Talk to me about how much danger you think it puts this squabble means. Or is, is it a squabble? When I describe it as a squabble, am I underestimating this, the, the seriousness of the divisions within the party? Um, I can only offer a personal opinion. And obviously, Stop Glamacaeus doesn't have opinions on party politics. Um, all political parties are, in effect, coalitions in themselves. And the Green Party has for a long time, had a very easy time um, marking out a territory, a very niche space in Irish political parties. Um, it represented more strongly that ecological wing that Harry McGee spoke about on the week in politics. And increasingly over the last uh, 10 years or so, there's the introduction of a quite clearly demarcated social justice wing. But where I slightly disagree with Harry's analysis is that the social justice wing itself breaks up into two distinct camps. One is the more sort of traditional centre-left uh, type approach to distributive questions, um, you, know, you know, eliminating inequalities and equality-proofing climate policies. And these concerns would be shared right throughout the climate movement as well, I would say. But you also have the introduction of what you might describe very loosely as a kind of identity politics as well. And so a lot of people would have joined the Green Party as well as joining other parties like Sinn Féin and the Sock Dems, very much energised by the Together for Yes campaigns and also the campaigns for marriage equality. And identity politics, as you know, is quite different. It lends itself to more kind of simplistic styles, more um, activism on the street, yes, no, binary position on issues, a certain kind of impatience with mundane politics of policy reform, and certainly uh, a, a, an impatience towards sort of technological approaches and the kind of technocratic uh, policy uh, kind of debates that are very unfortunately common in climate policy, particularly. And, you know, that demographic difference is, is there as well. Youth are very concerned about the housing crisis and feel very much that that issue could be sidelined or forgotten. And they are aware of their power as a kind of collective voice uh, to influence uh, political parties and party policies very much from the outside. The youth strikers that were out on the streets in 2019, very many of them 
are already now able to vote and will be voting in the next general election. And they know their power. They know that they can influence things. And so they insert themselves sometimes, uh, maybe this is unfair to them, but there is a sense in which that kind of thinking inserts itself into party political discourse with a view to uh, influencing it as if it were on the outside. And that doesn't sit easily with your traditional party uh, that is trying to get itself elected, trying to get candidates elected and trying to use its leverage uh, to maximise its influence over other parties as a junior coalition partner. Now, this is just a personal view. So I do think that to answer your question more directly, I think it's both a squabble and a split. I think it's a squabble in the sense that it's a bizarre turn of events. It makes no sense if you're looking at the potential impact on the Green Party's profile of introducing that bill with all the comms that went with it, the fact that you had the three-party leaders there standing side by side supporting this hugely significant piece of legislation. It is very bizarre that, you know, this issue, a nomination for a Shannon by-election that the candidate herself doesn't think she can win, um, becomes such a prominent issue. So I think the Greens also have some... Uh, figuring out to do about how to manage and discipline their own parliamentary party. Um, That's the only thing I can say. By-elections come up from time to time. There will be a general election at some point in the future. And this particular individual already has a very high profile as the Dublin's Lord Mayor. So I think it smacks of some deeper divisions in the party and particularly within the parliamentary party. And the only person who can really resolve that or shed clear light on it is perhaps the party leader. That That is a really interesting analysis there by, by Sive Pat. And it makes me think about this matter in a slightly different way or identification of, of kind of three strands, I suppose, within the party. Because listening to Hazel Chu, and I've listened to her on a couple of podcasts over the last week or so, I was listening to her on the the Tortoise Shack podcast yesterday evening, for example. And she's very critical of what she describes as old forms of politics. And, you know, there is no more old form of politics in, in Ireland than the way in which the Shannad is elected, the series of rotten boroughs, and if anything, the by-elections are even worse than the the original elections to the thing, and the whole institution itself has been the subject of but of quite correct criticism, in my view, for many years, and then the parties divvy up, they do these sordid, behind-doors deals, and a bunch of red-faced men in suits emerge as the chosen ones. And it seems, on one level, quite legitimate to me for somebody like Hazel Chu, who represents a very different way of doing Irish politics, and who represents a, a newer kind of Ireland, might bridle at that, and that she might be supported in that position. Um, Up to a point... Perhaps, yeah. I mean, the 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 Shannad is largely consists of rotten boroughs. You're absolutely correct um, about that. Bear in mind, though, that the people of Ireland, in their infinite wisdom, were offered the opportunity to abolish the Shannad uh, in the not too distant past, and for reasons which weren't terribly clear to me at the time, uh, decided not to do so. Um, we we live. Uh, you know, we, we, we live in a parliamentary democracy uh, for all its flaws uh, and for all its upper house may be in need of reform. That is what we are stuck with uh, for the time being. And it seems to me that uh, if you believe that the future of the planet is uh, in grave danger due to 
climate change, then you probably don't have the luxury of reforming all our political and electoral institutions first before you get around uh, to dealing with climate change. And I think that's a, you know, I think that's a, a bargain with themselves. Many people in the Green Party have made. That, after all, was the decision that the party made by a, a fairly stonking majority to enter government and work with its imperfect procedures and structures to achieve uh, not just political change, but but the 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 spear, the tip of the spear uh, of that, which is changing the law. We live in a society of laws, and if we wish to change those laws, we do so in uh, in Parliament. And um, I, I, I think that I was right, that this is both a squabble, but it's also a split. To a certain extent, it is a refighting of the decision on whether to go into government, which was taken by the party last summer. It finds its form today in a squabble, uh, which will be incomprehensible to many people, about the nomination for uh, a Shannon by-election. But it is pretty, it, it, it is a pretty fundamental split, I think, in the party. It may result in uh, an actual split in the party, whereby people... Uh, whereby people depart and um, and you know depart formally from the party structures uh, in in the Oireachtas. There will be, a, as I understand it, a meeting of the parliamentary party uh, this evening. There will uh, I don't know whether the I don't know whether the motion of no confidence in Hazel Chu as chairperson will go ahead at that uh, at that meeting. There will certainly be, I think a motion asking her to step down as chair for the duration of the uh, of the Shannad campaign, given that she is standing as an independent candidate uh, in that. Uh, I think Eamon Ryan has the numbers to win that motion. Um, I don't think Hazel Chu will accept the, uh, the motion without a vote. So we'll see what happens if and when that is pushed to a vote and what Hazel Chu does then. But this is... Um, you know, as I say, this is a, a serious and fundamental split. It merely finds its form in, 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 in a somewhat arcane squabble over nominations. Saif, I can see that some of these issues arise from um, problems of success with the party getting much bigger, both in terms of its political representation and also I think its membership expanding quite a lot. And as you mentioned earlier, partly on the back of other political movements around the recent referendums and and those kinds of things too. But um, maybe I'm being naive, but I always thought the Green Party was a bit above these kind of personal squabbles. I mean, they didn't even have a leader at the start because they thought such a thing was a bad idea. And then I remember kind of, you know, the noble kind of gesture of Trevor Sargent on the, you know, on the edge of power and he immediately stepped down. You know, a a very different approach to the leadership of a political party than we see in other Irish political parties. And then the other thing is, you look across the water and then across the water again to the most successful Green Party in Europe, which is the German Greens, who are on the edge of power and are vying with the Christian Democrats, according to recent polls, to be the largest party in the country. It's a very pragmatic, very, you know, uh, make its gains and consolidate them and move forward. It's been in government in many um, in many parts of Germany for many years. It, it, it is the Irish Green Party, does this 
suggest a sort of an existential crisis in that the old Irish Green Party, which to be honest, I think of as a little bit tweedy and a little bit nice, is being replaced by another spikier, um, more interesting maybe Green Party. It's hard to tell. And um, I think the the reality is we won't know the outcome of this until after the next general election, um, because the performance of the Green Party will depend on so many other things. And, you know, it, it, when when the Greens went into the election um, early in 2020, we didn't even have the pandemic to worry about at that stage. So there's an awful lot of variables in the mix. Um, I think that most Green Parties go through a process of maturation and they find their place within the party political system in whatever country. And they find they find their, their home. I suppose, um, in the landscape that's that's already uh, um, determined by other political parties and by the political culture and to a certain extent by the electoral system as well. Um, so the Irish Green Party was very much a niche party at the beginning, very much influenced by the UK Ecology Party. So kind of standing on kind of ideological grounds apart from the other political parties, very critical of the political system, only pursuing electoral politics as the means to an end rather than an end in itself. And most political par- green political parties have matured in Europe to the point where no politics is the end. Politics is the end. And they see themselves as a forum for representation of a, of a, a growing constituency that um, is much broader than that kind of niche concern of the Green Party when it started out in the 1980s. So I think that's kind of just the natural cycle of political parties. They're not going away anywhere. And the interesting thing is the extent to which green ideas find their way into the political platforms of other parties. They're clearly there to a certain degree in parties like People Before Profit and the Social Democrats. Uh, But increasingly, you see uh, a more uh, considered approach to environmental and climate policy from clearly Sinn Féin, putting a lot of energy into it, and also Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And when it comes to the next general election, uh, there's no doubt that the the, the political pundits are saying that uh, Fianna Gael and the Green Party will be rivals for many of the seats that the Greens currently hold in Dublin. And so it will be interesting to see the lengths to which Fianna Gael, as a more centre-right party, try to compete with the Greens on their uh, turf. Um, But our experience just observing... um, you know, governments over the last 20 years is that, you know, if the Greens uh, are going to be a junior coalition partner or, or put it another way, that governments that have junior coalition partners that are broadly centre left tend to be able to deliver more on climate action. They make it more of a priority. It's further up on their list and they use their leverage more successfully. The worst governments on climate were the ones where you didn't have representation from either the Greens or the Labour Party or in the old days, Democratic left as well. Um, So it clearly does make a difference to outcomes, whether you have a Green Party or not in the mix. And um, so even though you see other parties paying lip service to climate and environment, it, it, you know, we just can't know in the case of Sinn Féin or the Sock Dems how far up the list of priorities it will actually be when they go into government formation talks. And I suppose the proof of that thesis, Pat, is in the fact that this climate action bill is probably more radical than a lot of people would have anticipated, that Eamon Ryan in negotiating it had some serious wins. Yeah, I, I, I think like this brings us back maybe to where, uh, to where we 
where we started about uh, the the climate bill. And just to pick up on one thing that said, said there, there, there's no doubt in my mind that this stuff only stands a chance of getting done, getting implemented if the Greens are in government. Um, traditionally, the way to achieve change in Ireland uh, has been for small parties to convince the big parties that they needed uh, to implement, uh, that they needed to implement legal, legislative, constitutional changes. That's what the Greens have, uh, that, that's what the Greens have achieved with this piece of legislation. Um, to, to, to my eyes, it is, um, and I, I wrote at the weekend that last week was the best week that the Greens had had in government with the publication uh, of this legislation. And that's why it was all the more curious to me that it should be overshadowed by the internal party squabble. But I think there are two achievements of this legislation, both operating on slightly different planes. The first is that, um, as I think it was Friends of the Earth pointed out, that the um, the legislation makes it a legal duty of the government not just to attempt to reach these targets, but to actually achieve the targets. That is now uh, a duty in law. And while the means of doing so has not yet been outlined, it is a legal duty for the government to uh, to produce those means. The second um, thing, I had a conversation with somebody uh, in government uh, uh, about this last week. And their point was that what this legislation and also the presence of the Greens in government has done with the climate action agenda is that it has elevated it beyond normal government priorities. And the comparison this person made was sort of with Northern Ireland during the governments uh, uh, led by Bertie Ahern, that it was, uh, it, it was a government priority of an order that sort of floated above everything else. I think I made the point earlier that this is up there, you know, with health and education and uh, and so forth now. Actually, the point this person, you know, who who is very familiar with the workings of a number of governments made to me was that climate action now hovered above those uh, more quotidian sort of uh, priorities for, for government beyond, you know, the reach of day-to-day politics and also, you know, the reach of the department, largely the reach of the Department of Finance, which for the day-to-day operation uh, of government and the subsequent achievement of these targets, I think is uh, is terribly important. Now, I do think that the achievement of the targets will lead to an awful lot of political difficulty for the government when you get into things like uh, you know, agricultural emissions and the national herd and so forth, you know, there will be very significant resistance given the well, uh, you know, the oft observed tendency of um, amongst the Irish public to, you know, believe that uh, everybody else uh, apart from themselves should uh, should do the heavy lifting on things like this. But, um, but I think that in terms of now, at this point in time, you know, less than one year into a five-year uh, to a five-year term of office, I think that this has achieved, or last week's publication of the legislation achieve, uh, represents an achievement that was probably beyond what the Greens might have hoped for when they went into government last summer. 
So, so forgive me for being sceptical, but it's based on, on, on real-life experience. We've seen what happened in Irish politics with commitments to, uh, to environmental targets over the years and how dismally successive governments failed to meet them and sucked up the EU fines that came with them and just chundered on regardless. If I were to paint a picture of, in three years' time, the future Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, uh, coalition and the minister for agriculture in the in that government say decides feck it we're not going to do it i mean it's all very well to say that the law requires them to do it but what happens if they don't well that's why we want the law to um, make sure that regardless of who's in government that the targets are achieved uh, so the idea is that you have a 2050 target that's a long-term target but um, quite surprisingly actually even though it wasn't a commitment directly in the program for government to put a 2030 target into the bill uh, there is a 2030 target now an interim target a milestone against which uh, you know that's going to set the carbon budgets essentially for the for the next nine years so so the Climate Change Advisory Council is now tasked with drawing up carbon budgets that will match that 51% emission reductions target for 2030. Uh, so that means that this isn't a long-term project. This isn't something that can be kicked down the road. This is going to require early sustained emission reductions starting now, essentially. Now, in terms of the political atmosphere, it's likely that all TDs or most of them will vote in favour of the bill in second stage in the sense that it's just a nod to go go through the Oireachtas procedures, we would expect to see an overwhelming majority. And there will be a lot of amendments and discussion at committee stage. And it's likely that the bill could pass before the summer recess. Um, but what's interesting is that not only is that possible because the bill was, was improved to take on board the very strong recommendations of a cross-party Oireachtas committee that did uh, pre-legislative scrutiny, but also there's a broader political consensus outside of the party politics, within the civil service, uh, within the state agencies and with, within civil society as a whole. It's only 10 years ago that the head of Deeper, the Department of Public Enterprise, uh, recommended to the 2011 government to to stop trying to introduce targets for climate action on an ideological basis. I think that might have been Robert Watt, in fact. So things have moved on a long way. The reason we have to do this ambitious climate action is precisely because the government in the past failed to do it and vested interests got hold of the law and uh, blocked it, both IBEC and the IFA. So 10 years ago, they killed the bill. And there's no sense that that kind of energy has come into the political conversation this time around. Anything could happen. And it's possible that there will be resistance within the system for sure. But it's different. We are operating under a greater awareness of the scientific advice. Uh, we've had a few key IPCC reports telling us that we're running out of time to prevent dangerous global warming. We're also operating within the European Union and the European Union has just set a target of 55% reductions for 2030. So one way or the other, Ireland is going to have to confront the fact that it failed to act and that we now have to catch up. We didn't act in time. And the, the effect of that was to make things more costly and more difficult. Um, if we had acted earlier, we would have been able to have a, a more shallow uh, decline in our emissions profile. And now we have to do much more ambitious stuff. Um, so, I mean, it's worth also pointing out that we had to pay fines for not meeting our 2020 targets and we're still paying them. So there, there, there's kind of no way out anymore. And it's not an ideological issue. It's just a basic uh, scientific fact.
I think I, I, I certainly accept that. I think you're quite right that the majority of people do. But Pat, you're also right in your cynicism about Irish people and their their unhappiness about the idea that 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 the the bill might land on their desk. And there are large elements within this which surely have huge implications for things like the current range of agricultural subsidies to the to the beef and dairy industry. Um, we had an interesting story a few days ago about the amount of subsidies that go to uh, carbon-based fuels, including airline fuel and various other things like that. And these are all things that will... will, will um, impact negatively let me put it that way in term on in terms of the bottom line on large sectors of our society and also very powerful business interests yes it's going to be extremely difficult the three principal levers i suppose for making the big gains uh, in in carbon in reducing carbon emissions are cows how we heat our homes and how we get around and those are going to be they're going to be extremely difficult. They will, you know, when people wake up to what this will actually mean to them in their daily lives and the inconvenience that, uh, uh, and in many cases, expense that it's going to involve, they're not going to be happy about it. Look at the, you know, look at the campaigning against, uh, you know, relatively modest increases in the carbon tax uh, that we've seen thus far. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, the tip of the melting iceberg, I suppose, uh, in uh, in terms of uh, of what is to come. And it will be really interesting to watch, fascinating to watch, I think, how the political system accommodates itself to that, a political system that, uh, you know, that is always responsive to people's desire to be, uh, uh, you know, to be unmolested by policy changes, whether that is, you know, people not wanting to have, you know, their commutes, uh, their, their commutes interfered with by cycle lanes in, uh, in Sandymount are, uh, are, are whether, you know, people don't want to have blocks of apartments built, you know, over their, uh, over their back wall, whatever, uh, whatever it is, it is one of the constants in our, at the retail end of our political life. And, uh, I, I think that when that comes into conflict, as it surely will, with the you know the legal the now legal necessity to uh, reduce carbon uh, to, to reduce carbon emissions in those areas, uh, I, I don't know frankly what's going to happen. I think it is entirely unpredictable. Is it possible, Pat? I'll just ask you a follow up on that. There is a view out there, exemplified by a good friend of Ireland, Nigel Farage, that the next sort of political divide, the great political divide in the Western world, is going to be between this project to uh, to reduce carbon emissions um, as fast as possible. And people who resist it because they want to keep driving their cars and they don't like that cycle lane you're talking about and that that might be the new great political divide in Western democracies. I think that's, I mean, look at what happened in France over the fuel protests. I think that you look at how the British government has uh, frozen fuel duties now for uh, for a decade because every time the Chancellor of the Exchequer comes to frame his budget, he looks at the political implications of raising duty on fuel and he blanches uh, at it. Successive chancellors have done that. I think that is... Um, I, I think that is the, the point that Farage makes is a real threat. And, uh, you know, I think that politicians, civil society organizations are going to have to continually make the case for climate action in the political sphere 
to keep the uh, to keep the pressure on. They do have some things um, that you know. They do, there are some gusts of wind behind the, uh, the the cause of climate action. You know, one is as as Sive says the science of it, but the second is this massive mobilization of young people, and that is a political force in and of itself, and it's going to become a more important political force, I think, in the uh, in the decade to come. But I wouldn't under- underestimate at all. The, uh, the sort of kickback you will get, um, uh, particularly when it comes to, um, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to duty on fuel and uh, and those related issues. Yes, I can I ask you about that? Because, I mean, you've already talked, I think, correctly about that sort of institutional inertia, which prevented things being done or promises being met in the past. But is it possible that we now enter into a, a point at which this becomes much more overtly a political issue on which people decide how to cast their votes and there's a there's a division you know represented among political parties on it because the necessary radical measures are going to impact in people in ways in which they will react against in some way or other well i would be holding out for the idea of a kind of competitive consensus between political parties, that what's in the climate bill is the very minimum of what Ireland should be doing and that we can't be competing uh, on the basis of possibly going back. It's not, it, you can never rule out the possibility of reversals. Reversals do happen in political life. We've seen it happen in the United States. We've seen it happen in Australia over their carbon tax and we can't take anything for granted. But just to come back on the point that Pat has made there, um, wherever you have a kind of a competition between personal freedoms and 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 and, a, and an argument around safety, um, now we've seen that play out in the COVID debate, and the safety argument has the overwhelming public support. Um, so there are a small minority of people who feel that their personal freedoms are being infringed upon, but the vast majority of people accept the need for a certain amount of sacrifice or changes, at least on a temporary basis, in order to ensure that the virus doesn't spread and kill people. Now, when it comes to climate change, we, we need to think about that kind of narrative that, you know, that there is a certain kind of possible loss of what we perceive to be a personal freedom, but there's so much more to be gained. Like what we think of as a personal freedom in the sense of being able to, to drive around in what Frank MacDonald used to call our private chariots, uh, our cars, um, you know, creates a whole host of problems that we can solve by shifting towards a more sustainable transport system. And that's just one. The other thing is never to underestimate public support. We saw from the Citizens' Assembly that there is a very strong uh, public, latent public support for strong actions that might perceive, that might suggest that, that there is an element of uh, sacrifice involved. But when the arguments are presented in a way where people can engage with the information and discuss them and deliberate, uh, very often people come up with very radical propositions. And the Eurobarometer poll most recently in 2019 suggested that over three quarters of respondents in Ireland um, think about climate change as a very serious problem, uh, which is a, a significant increase on the previous survey. So there's a growing awareness in the public. And it really is a question for political parties to channel that into kind of meaningful public dialogue about the options that are available to us and how we might adapt our communities, our homes, our businesses, our industries, and right upstream into thinking about where we get our energy from and how we can limit and end the use of fossil fuels in our energy system altogether. Last question to you, Pat, and as befits this podcast, it's a grubby little political one as opposed to the, the, the higher questions which we've been talking about there. 
Um, Eamon Ryan only barely won that that leadership contest last year, so that revealed something about his support and Catherine Martin's support within the party. Given the various strands within that party, which we were discussing at the moment, and uh, past green attitudes to leadership for the common wheel and all that kind of stuff, would it not be better for Eamon Ryan just to step down at this point and let Catherine Martin take over and maybe, um, you know, heal some of those wounds? I don't see that happening, to be honest. Um I mean, Eamon Ryan is, he has a sort of a, and I don't want to be unkind to him, but almost a kind of a bumbling style as, uh, as, as a politician. But, you know, he, 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 he bumbled into government in 2007. And then, of course, the Greens were destroyed in 2011. And then over a period of a decade, he, he you know, he bumbled into a massive regeneration of, uh, of his party. And then he bumbled into, you know, the best result that it had ever had in a general election campaign. And then against the, uh, you know, against the wishes of some of his uh, TDs and a chunk of his party, he bumbled them into, uh, into government and then he bumbled his way into winning another a challenge to his leadership last summer and now he's after bumbling his way into the strongest piece of climate legislation that the country and, and indeed much of Europe uh, has ever seen. So I wouldn't underestimate uh, Mr Ryan's ability to bumble his way through this. I do think that um, for many people uh, in the Greens there is a... The, there is a, a, a difference in their political vision, I think, to many people, not all people, but many people in other political parties, which is that they will be, many of them, willing to sacrifice their seats for, um, for effective and lasting uh, and legally binding climate action. I think that, you know, most of the Green TDs, if you sat them down and, uh, and asked them that, they they tell you they they'd be willing to 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 sacrifice their seats so i think that if the time came where Eamon ryan you know believed that achieving more effective climate action in government would be best served by his resignation uh i, I wouldn't be surprised to see him take that take that step but i think he is a long long way away from making that judgment. In fact, I think that um, Ryan probably believes that it is important that he, with his kind of clear-eyed and sometimes ruthless prioritization within government, he's uh, more willing than some of his colleagues, I think, to accept the sort of compromises on other issues. And, you know, you could mention CETA as, uh, as one that might not be to his liking, but he, which he views as an acceptable sacrifice to achieve the bigger goal of effective legally binding climate action law. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I think he would be, I think he, he I, I mean, don't wish to, to, to speak for him, but having observed him for a while now, for a long time now, uh, I I think his view would be that uh, it is important that uh, he stays where he is. All right, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Sai and to Pat for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and we're going to be back with you again very soon. But until then, remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcasts at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.